So the paper's called Contemplation in Philosophical Perspective. In the book of Syrac, chapter 32, we find some remarks on behavior at dinner parties. If you're older, feel free to speak, but don't interfere with the music. If you are young, don't speak unless they ask you twice, and then keep it short. When the party's over, don't hang around, but leave promptly, and then, well, what then? As the Vulgate has it, Hora surgendi, non te trices precore autem prior indomum tuam, et illuc avocare, et illic lude, et age conceptiones tuas. The Douay version renders this as follows. At the time of rising, be not slack, but be first to run home to thy house, and there withdraw thyself, and there take thy pastime, and do what thou hast a mind. The confraternity version, which is a sort of successor to the Douay version, goes like this. When it is time to leave, tarry not, be off for home. There take your ease, and, enjoy, and there enjoy doing as you wish. Lude et age conceptiones tuas. Take thy pastime, and do what thou hast a mind. Enjoy doing as you wish. Sounds like fun. Of course, the sacred text goes on to add, et non indelictis et verbo superbo, without sin and without prideful words. All this is good advice, no doubt, but then you might ask, why does Thomas Aquinas begin his commentary on Boethius's De Hebdomadibus with this text? I'll just let you wonder about that for a while. Of course, you already know because Father Andrew spoiled the joke with his talk, but whatever. I have been asked to talk about contemplation from a philosophical angle and I wish to begin with some preliminary hand-wringing about the issues that I don't want to talk about. First, I don't want to talk about the contemplative life, if that means getting sucked into the old debate about whose life is better than whose. In my view, people engaged in those discussions almost never make enough distinctions in a way that can be both intellectually and spiritually pernicious. This is not the place to sort it all out even if I felt myself up to the task. Second, I don't want to talk about philosophical contemplation as such, unaided contemplation, as it were. If that means setting up the philosophical life, quote unquote, as some sort of Aristotelian ideal, which Thomists accept as well, a life devoted to the fullest possible exercise of natural reason with the added proviso that, of course, Thomists also go to mass. It's true that grace doesn't destroy nature, but it does complete or perfect it, and completing it doesn't mean leaving it exactly as it was while adding a nice bonus for Sunday. I don't want to give aid and comfort to any such worldly Thomism, but neither do I want to avoid that danger by making this a theological or spiritual lecture because that would spoil the beautiful tripartite structure of this conference, not to mention tread on the turf of my fellow speakers. So what's philosophical about this talk is not the kind of contemplation it examines, but the way it examines it. I will talk about contemplation, but not about philosophical contemplation. I will talk about contemplation, but I will do so philosophically, meaning, that I will discuss it insofar as it can be understood by natural reason. In particular, I will ask what contemplation is, what kind of activity or operation it is. In saying that I wish to proceed only on the basis of natural reason, am I proposing to fight with one hand tied behind my back, perhaps as a sort of party trick? Am I addressing in a merely philosophical way a topic that could be addressed better and more easily in light of revelation? Not really, as I will now try to explain. God reveals not only truths that could not have been understood in any other way, but also certain truths that could, at least in principle, be discovered philosophically. But God does not reveal all truths that could, in principle, be discovered philosophically. 
As Aquinas says, God reveals the ones that man needs to know for salvation. For salvation. From this, it does not follow that God reveals everything needed for good theology. There are, in fact, many topics that the theologian must know about, but that Revelation does not address. If Revelation doesn't address them, then we need to discover them by means of unaided reason, by philosophy in the very broad sense. We say that philosophy is a handmaid, and that might sound like she just makes the coffee, but often she's an advisor or even a judge. When philosophy talks, theology should listen. By saying that philosophy is sometimes an advisor, I don't mean that theologians should be constantly telephoning philosophers to ask them questions such as, what is the difference between the accidental and the essential? Or, what is the difference between intended and unintended consequences? Generally speaking, you can't outsource philosophy or hire philosophical consultants. When I say that theologians need to borrow from philosophy, I, need that, I mean that theologians need to do philosophy themselves. Theologians need to take responsibility for their own philosophizing. I realize that this doesn't always happen, but then again, theology isn't always done well. You have no doubt already guessed that I consider my topic in this lecture, the nature of contemplation, to be precisely the sort of topic that needs to be explored philosophically, whether by someone whose official job description is philosophy, or by someone whose official job description is theology, or by anyone else. <clears throat> but I don't mean thereby that theology could never add anything beyond what philosophy has said. In particular, I intend to leave open the possibility that theology will want to say that there is a special supernatural infused version of contemplation. But this claim cannot really be understood unless we start with the basic philosophical notion of contemplation. As mentioned before, grace builds on nature. Our question then is what is contemplation, meaning thereby what is it to contemplate? What activity does that word indicate? I will begin by engaging with some recent work by Rick van Juvenhove. That work is rich, informative, and thought-provoking, and I will build upon it, even if also disagreeing to a certain extent. The analysis that van Juvenhove offers focuses, with good reason, on the interesting phrase which Aquinas uses to talk about contemplation namely, simplex intuitus veritatis, a simple gazing upon the truth. The phrase appears in the Thomistic corpus very infrequently. Its provenance is not clear, and it might even be Aquinas' own coinage, as van Juvenhove indicates. In any case, this is our first clue to the nature of contemplation. It's a simplex intuitus veritatis. But what is that? I will begin by stressing, following van Juvenhove, that this simple gazing upon is a matter of intellectus rather than ratio. To grasp this point, it's important to recall that the distinction between intellectus and ratio is sometimes a distinction between kinds of mind or kinds of mental capacity, and sometimes a distinction between kinds of mental act or operation. As a distinction between kinds of mind, it marks the difference between angels and humans. An angel always already knows the truth, knows the truths that it knows, whereas the human mind usually has to pass from one thought to another in order to arrive at truth. For example, angels just know that dogs are warm-blooded, whereas we probably come to know this by having reasoned from the proposition all dogs are mammals and all mammals are warm-blooded. To mark the fact that we must often engage in, reason, in reasoning or ratiocination, <clears throat> Aquinas says that the type of mind we have and the type of thinking capacity we have is ratio rather than intellectus. As I mentioned, these same two words can indicate not merely kinds of mind or mental capacity, but also kinds of operations that minds can perform. 
Although it is indeed a special characteristic of the human mind that it engages in reasoning from one thought to another, human thought is not always in motion. Sometimes we pause and hold a thought, either in simple apprehension, as when we grasp what it is to be a dog or a triangle, or in judgment, as when we judge that all dogs are mammals, or that all triangles have internal angles that add up to two right angles. Because these are acts that stay still and take hold of truth, rather than acts of moving from one thought to another, Aquinas treats them as intellectual acts, acts of intellectus, even when performed by humans. With this distinction in hand, let us return to the point that contemplation is a matter of intellectus rather than a matter of ratio. There are at least two reasons to attribute this association to Aquinas. First, there is an explicit textual connection. For example, in Summa Theologiae Part 1, Question 59, Article 1, response to the first objection, Aquinas says, intellect knows by simple intuition but reason knows by running from one thing to another. Reason is ratio there. So here we see the expression simplex intuitus clearly linked to the term intellectus. Beyond this textual link, the association makes excellent sense on Thomistic principles. The verb corresponding to intellectus is intelligere, to understand. And Aquinas says, that intelligere est simpliciter veritatem intelligibilem apprehendere. To understand is simply to grasp understandable truth. What acts of intellect do then is grasp truth. This is done by judgment primarily, but by simple apprehension in a secondary fashion as well. For us here, the point is that truth provides a link between intellectus and contemplatio. Contempla contemplation is the intuition of truth, and we grasp truth through intellectual operations rather than through ratiocination. All this suggests that contemplation is a matter of grasping truth, of intellectus, especially in judgment. And that is indeed what I intend to say, albeit with an important qualification that will become clear eventually. This is not, however, it seems Van Uwenhove's view. He says rather that, quote, strictly speaking, contemplation does not extend to all intellective dimensions of the operations of the intellect, but only to the simple grasp of truth in which these operations come to fulfillment. Going beyond the standard idea that there are three acts of the mind, the two intellectual acts of simple apprehension and judgment, and then reasoning, his idea seems to be that contemplation may count as a fourth act of the mind. The first thing he says in support of this view comes from combining two texts from Aquinas. One text is from the prologue to Aquinas' commentary on Aristotle's De Interpretatione, where Aquinas says that the first act of the mind, simple apprehension, is ordered to the second act of the mind, judgment, and that judgment is ordered to the third act of the mind, reasoning. The other text is a passage from De Veritate, question 14, article 9, where Aquinas uses the word intuitus to say that the gaze of understanding, intuitus intellectus, can be fixed on those things that are present to the understanding. It seems to me, however, that this involves some overreading of the texts. When Aquinas says in the De Interpretatione commentary that the first act is ordered to the second, he explains this by saying that the second cannot happen without the first. When he says that the second act is ordered to the third, he explains this by saying that we need to engage in the third act reasoning in order to move from things known to things unknown. But Aquinas gives us no reason to think that what the third act leads to is a fourth kind of act. It is perfectly consistent with the text to suppose that the third act, the reasoning process, leads to a new instance of a second act, i.e., to a new judgment that would serve as the conclusion of the reasoning process. As for the text from the De Veritate, Aquinas' concern in that passage is not contemplation at all, but instead the question of faith and reason, or faith and science. Picking up on a saying of Augustine's, 
Aquinas says that belief concerns things that are not present either to the senses or to the mind. And Aquinas explains present to the mind by saying that things are present to the mind if they do not exceed its capacity, which is what makes it possible for the mind to fix its gaze upon them. In context, this fixing of the gaze captures anything that is within the capacity of the human mind. And there's no reason to think that this passage is pointing us beyond the standard three acts. Van Uvenhove's second reason for supposing contemplation to be a special fourth act of the mind involves Summa Theologiae Secunda Secundae question 180, where Aquinas is discussing the so-called contemplative life. Van Uvenhove points us to Article 6, where he says, quote now, Aquinas states that the understanding that arises from the operations of the intellect constitutes the culminating act of contemplation. That's the end of the quotation there. An act which, quoting again now, fulfills and crowns the other operations. He also points us to Article 3, where Aquinas says that contemplation is the ultimus contemplativus actus, which phrase van Uwenhove translates as the last and crowning act. I believe that these interpretations also involve over-interpretation. It is true that in Article 6, Aquinas says that discoursing must cease for the soul's powers to be fixed in the gaze of contemplation. And obviously, this excludes the third act, reasoning. But it gives us no reason to think that the first and second acts are also excluded. As for Article 3, Aquinas there asks whether the contemplative life involves many acts or one. And his answer is that it primarily consists in the act that gives it unity, namely contemplation, but that it also involves other acts leading up to this. This suggests that the acts that lead up to contemplation, although part of the contemplative life, are not acts of contemplation. Now, if all first and second acts of the mind are included in the acts that lead up to contemplation, it would be right to conclude that contemplation is neither a case of simple apprehension nor an act of judgment. I take it that this is Van Uwenhove's reading. Aquinas contrasts the crowning contemplative act with acceptatio principiorum and deductio principiorum, i.e. with the reception of principles that thought begins with and with the deduction of the truth that is th sought. For Van Uwenhove, acceptatio principiorum encompasses both the first and second acts, while the deductio encompasses the third. But I do not see why we must accept this reading. The reception of principles does indeed involve first and second acts of the mind. But from that, it does not follow that all first and second acts are examples of the reception of principles. In particular, any act of reasoning concludes in a judgment a second act of the mind, and therefore some judgments count not as a reception of principles. I have argued that the texts that Professor van Uwenhove points to do not require us to conclude that for Aquinas, contemplation, the simple gaze upon the truth, is an act of the mind different in kind from either the first or the second act. That means we are still looking for an answer to the question of what sort of act contemplation is. Before attacking that point directly, however, I want to shift focus a bit and talk about something else that Van Uwenhove points out, namely that when Aquinas talks about intellectus and contrasts it with ratio, he relies on Neoplatonic sources like Pseudo-Dionysius rather than on Aristotle. Just as a historical observation, this is extremely interesting. Like he says this and you think, really? But like, it's true, it's very amazing hidden in plain sight. Beyond that, Van Uwenhove makes four points concerning the question of contemplation, three of which I want to endorse, but one of which I have a doubt about. First, going the Neoplatonic route involves a lot of talk about angels. Talking about contemplation in this way allows Aquinas to show how human thought has an element that is similar to angelic thought, thereby highlighting highlighting the continuities that accompany the hierarchical structure of Aquinas' worldview. 
Second, it allows Aquinas to partly assimilate contemplation to the beatific vision, highlighting a certain continuity between this life and the next. Third, it allows Aquinas to understand how simple people, not educated in theological reasoning, can still engage in contemplation in as much as it opens the door to notions of infused understanding as found in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It occurs to me as I speak, I could have added there, this is another continuity. This time it's continuity between fancy theologians and everyone else. Fourth, this is the one I'm not so sure about. Going the Neoplatonic route allows Aquinas to break with Aristotle in a way that he needs to do. For Aristotle, both science and wisdom are downstream from demonstration. This is straightforwardly true of what is known scientifically by science or episteme, because such knowing just is knowing through demonstration. It's also true of wisdom indirectly, inasmuch as wisdom includes some of the things known by episteme. But on Van Uwenhove's account, whatever is known by demonstration inherits the complexity of its origin in the complex act of demonstration which means that what is grasped through episteme, precisely because it is demonstrative, is not simple, not a simplex intuitus. For this reason, science and wisdom on Aristotle's way of thinking are not simple. But Aquinas wants to think of science and wisdom as simple. And for this reason, on Van Uwenhove's interpretation, Aquinas needs to break with Aristotle, leading him to look to Neoplatonic sources. As indicated, I'm doubtful about this. To be sure, scientific demonstration is a complex process. But why believe that the conclusion of that process is itself complex? Why must the conclusion be stamped by the complexity of its origin? To take an analogous case, an act of simple apprehension is simple regardless of the complexity of the abstractive process that gave rise to it. Putting my objection a different way, Van Uwenhove seems to be saying that for contemplation to be simple, it must not be the result of a demonstrative process, or at any rate, that it must not necessarily be the result of a demonstrative process. I do not agree that being the result of a demonstrative process, sorry, I do not agree that being the result of a demonstrative process, however complex, automatically confers complexity on that result. On the other hand, in making that negative claim, I have still left unexplained what contemplation's simplicity amounts to. Having learned from, and also to some extent demurred from, Professor Van Uwenhove's analyses, I now wish to turn to my own proposal about contemplation. I wish to say to a first approximation that any grasping of a truth can be a case of contemplation. But to say that is not to say enough, because it leaves us with at least two questions. First, if any grasping of a truth can be a case of contemplation, then what is so special about contemplation? Second, in what sense is contemplation simple? One possible answer to the question of what makes contemplation simple, sorry, one possible answer to the question of what makes contemplation special is, that nothing makes it special. Aquinas rarely misses a chance to tie what he says to traditional views and traditional language. And talking about contemplation and the contemplative life is a big part of the Christian tradition. Maybe Aquinas feels duty bound to include contemplation as a topic, even though he doesn't have anything to say beyond what he has already said about the acts of the mind. I think that deflationary interpretations like this one are good to consider. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigarette. However, I don't actually think that's the case here. There really is something special indicated by the word contemplation. Another possible answer might be that what makes contemplation special is its object. It is an intellectual act of gazing on the highest truth or anyway, higher truths. This proposal is not unattractive. If someone were thinking about the fact that he had just missed the bus, it would sound strange to say that he was engaged in contemplation. 
And if we did say that, almost surely it would be because he was thinking about his failure to catch the bus in the light of some higher truths, the fragility of happiness, perhaps, or the nature of time. There are passages where Aquinas speaks in ways that seem to line up with this, at least to some extent. For example, in his commentary on the third book of Lombard's Sentences, Distinction 35, Question 1, Article 2, Questioncula 3, Aquinas introduces a distinction between contemplatio, by which God is contemplated in himself, and speculatio, whereby God is seen in creatures. Again, in the Secunda Secundae, Question 9, Article 4, Ad tertium, he says that the happiness of contemplation comes not from science, but from understanding and wisdom, and that these latter concern divine things. Nevertheless, Aquinas does not seem to have a strict policy of using the word contemplation only for acts that are aimed solely at God, or even only for acts that are aimed primarily or ultimately at God. For example, in, um, in the Prima Secundae, question 35, article 5, Aquinas explores the connection between sadness and contemplation. And in that discussion, he speaks of how contemplating worthless things can impede the contemplation of better things. There, at least, he's willing to allow for quote-unquote contemplation of lower things, which would mean that having higher things as one's object is not required for contemplation by definition. As so often, Aquinas is more terminologically flexible than we may be inclined to think. If looking at contemplation's object is not promising, maybe we should look more closely at the act itself. For this, it will help to consider something, it will help us to consider something Aquinas says when commenting on Book 10 of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. So here's a sort of block quote from Aquinas. Scrutiny into the truth is of two sorts. One consists in seeking after the truth, while the other consists in contemplating truth that is already discovered and known. And this latter is more complete because it is the end point and goal of seeking. For this reason, there is more delight in considering truth already known than in seeking for it. It is always worth asking whether something Aquinas says in a commentary is his own view or merely his view of what the text, of what the text is saying. But I find it very plausible that Aquinas is not merely reporting here, but endorsing. And what I want to put the focus on is this. Aquinas associates contemplation not with truth that is yet to be discovered, but truth that is already discovered and known. Yam invente et cognite. There's the seeking of truth, and then after the truth has been found, there's the contemplating of it. Maybe I can make things clearer with a quotation from a non-Thomistic text, namely Ken Kaufman's Field Guide to Advanced Birding. Open quotes. In the field, many birders spend 95% of their time looking for birds, and only 5% of their time, or less, actually looking at birds. End of quotation. What he's getting at is that bird watchers are often interested in racking up lists of how many birds they have seen and spend little time actually watching birds. Kaufman immediately goes on to say that if you spend more time looking at birds, you will, in the long run, improve your ability to identify them. In other words, looking at them makes you better at looking for them. But that's not where I want to go with the quotation. Instead, I want to highlight the distinction between looking for something in such a way that once you've seen it, you move on to something else, and looking at something with the goal of continuing to look at it. It's this second sort of looking that is not contemplative. Aquinas does not cite Ken Kaufman but he does sometimes invoke Pseudo-Dionysius's three-way distinction between circular, straight, and oblique movements of intellect. Contemplation, in the sense we are concerned with here, is the circular one. It is uniform. 
It doesn't go anywhere. So now I can present my interpretation of Aquinas on the act of contemplation, which goes beyond anything I have seen Aquinas say explicitly, but which seems to fit the texts. Contemplation is an act of grasping the truth where that grasping is rested in, rather than caught up in a ratiocinative process that leads onward for the seeking of some further truth. We are already familiar in the context of distinguishing theoretical from practical reason, already familiar with the idea that sometimes knowledge is sought for its own sake and sometimes for the sake of something other than itself. But now it appears that even within the theoretical realm, we find a distinction analogous to the theoretical practical distinction. Knowing something not for the sake of action is already a kind of theoretical knowledge, yes. But I still might want to know it not really for its own sake, but only for the sake of discovering something else. Only when I know it for its own sake, with no further truth thought, sought by means of it, is knowing it a case of contemplation in the full sense. My goal was to explain what kind of act contemplation is, but it turns out that I have not done exactly that. On my interpretation, a contemplative act is not a distinct psychic or logical type, except relationally. What makes an act contemplative is how it is related to other intellectual acts, and above all, perhaps, how it is not related to other intellectual acts. Focusing on judgment and demonstration will help to make this clear. If you take the proposition, all men are mortal, you can fit it into a demonstrative syllogism, such as all mortals are composite, all men are mortal, therefore all men are composite. There's nothing wrong with this, of course, but it involves thinking the thought, all men are mortal, only as part of, and in the service of, some larger discursive process oriented towards some other truth. If, by contrast, you were to simply grasp the truth, all men are mortal, hold it and gaze upon it, resting in that one judgment, then you would be engaging in contemplation. What makes the thinking of this thought contemplative, then, is not the nature of the thought as a first act, second act, or some possible fourth act, but instead the fact that this act is not used as a stepping stone for some further act, but instead treated as a resting place. Perhaps we should not use the noun contemplation so much as the adjective contemplative and speak of engaging in intellectual operations in a contemplative or non-contemplative fashion. This would bring out the idea that contemplation is not a distinct type of intellectual operation, but instead a distinct way of engaging in an intellectual operation. And now it may help to return to something we looked at earlier, the distinction between intellectus and ratio. Aquinas says that ratio is a kind of motion, while intellectus is the rest to which that motion tends. He uses this point to argue that intellectus and ratio are not different powers, because it makes no sense for the motion of one power to tend to the rest of some other power. For our purposes, the thing to highlight is the idea that intellectus is a kind of rest. As contrasted with ratio, it is an act that one stays with and rests in, rather than moving on from. Sooner or later, someone is going to complain that all this is just too intellectual. How could contemplation, a crucial part of the Christian life, be nothing other than thinking? It's helpful to recall that the same sort of complaint is often made about Aquinas' understanding of the life of the saints in heaven. He says that the beatific vision is a matter of intellect, yes, but not because he's cold-hearted. He says it because intellect is how you establish a link between an intellectual creature and an intelligible object. But he also says, almost in the same breath, that what leads to the beatific vision is love, and what follows from the beatific vision is joy. Similarly, similarly for contemplation, it's, just, it's not just that grasping the truth is intrinsically enjoyable, although there is that. It's also because, big quote here now, contemplation is made delightful on account of its object. 
inasmuch as someone contemplates something that he loves, as happens in the case of corporeal sight, which is delightful not only on account of the fact that seeing is delightful, but on account of the fact that one sees a person that one loves. That's the end of the quotation. So contemplation is not just holding on to truth. It's holding on to beloved truth and delighting in it. But then, how is contemplation simple? If contemplation means apprehending the truth, and if truth is found primarily in judgment, then we may have a problem, because judgment, unlike simple apprehension, seems not to be simple in virtue of its subject-predicate structure. I wish to say two things in reply. First, the very fact that a judgment is rested in and not joined to other intellectual operations as part of some larger whole is enough to give it a kind of simplicity. Instead of dealing with some multi-part ratiocinative process, in contemplation we are dealing with just one intellectual act. So that is, in itself, already a kind of simplicity. I have a second reply as well. In Summa Theologiae, Part 1, Question 85, Article 4, Aquinas asks whether we can understand more than one thing at a time. The answer, of course, is yes and no. We can only think one thought at a time, but more than one thing can be brought together under that one thought. Taken together with Article 5 of the same question, which talks about composition and division, I think we can say that for Aquinas, it is possible to understand many things at once as long as they are held together in the mind as parts of one conceptual whole. This is a kind of simplicity to the extent that simplicity can be had by complex creatures like us. This leads to a further consideration. When we think of contemplation, we might be tempted to think of it as some kind of large, all-encompassing vision. Just holding on to one little judgment might seem to fall pretty far short of that. I can't think of a particular place where Aquinas discusses this, but it seems to me that judgments come in various sizes, so to speak. We can think merely that Socrates is rational, or we could go bigger and think that all humans are rational, or that all humans are rational animals, or that all humans are created rational animals. Continuing along these lines, we can think that all humans are rational while all angels are intellectual. Or we can think that creatures are arranged in a hierarchy from non-living at the bottom upward through plants, animals, humans, and angels. We can, that is, think all of that as one thought, one big thought. These examples are meant to illustrate that although grasping a truth means grasping a truth, that is, grasping one truth, still, that one truth can be a whole encompassing many parts. Perhaps this way of understanding contemplation allows for the sort of wide vision that we might be tempted to associate with the word. But I don't think such a wide vision is necessary for contemplation by definition. One can simply contemplate the Pythagorean theorem. To sum up this section, I have proposed that to grasp a truth contemplatively is to grasp it and to rest in the grasping, to gaze upon that truth in delight rather than using it as a means for seeking some further truth. I have also proposed two ways of thinking about how such a gaze might be simple. Almost done. At risk of lowering the tone of this event, I now want to make two remarks that border on the practical. The first has to do with teaching. In De Veritate, question 11, article 4, Aquinas asks whether teaching belongs more to the active life or to the contemplative life. He says in the corpus that the act of teaching belongs to the active life. The argument seems to be that its intrinsic goal is helping one's neighbor. However, he also says in the reply to the third objection that the source of teaching, the principium doctrinae, is the teacher's vision the visio docentis. Although teaching isn't contemplating, teaching is still derived from contemplating. What Aquinas doesn't say, but which I would now like to add, is this. Whenever we are asked to teach something, that gives us the opportunity to refresh 
and revive our vision. If teaching itself is not contemplation, it's still the case that teaching can be the occasion of contemplation. Reviewing your lecture notes can be a contemplative moment. Remembering that might make you a better teacher, but even if it doesn't, it helps you keep contemplation in your life, which is not always easy for teachers to do. And of course, something analogous applies to preaching. Second, it's worth asking about the role of contemplation in the life of the academic researcher. The academic research industry pushes us to always be looking for new topics to think about, lecture about, write about. This isn't bad in and of itself, but it's worth asking whether it doesn't from time to time tend to drive out that simple intuition of the truth that Aquinas mentions. It's good not only to find more truths and publish them, it's good to also to stop and gaze upon them. I don't want to end without getting back to Syrac's advice about going home from dinner parties. Aquinas understands all that stuff at the end figuratively. Don't dawdle in the external world, but return to the house of your own mind and concern yourself with the concepts through which you attain to the truth and play there. Making the connection to Proverbs 8, Aquinas tells us that contemplation is like play, partly because it is delightful and partly because it is engaged in for its own sake rather than directed to something else. This is the simplex intuitus veritatis. Illic lude et age concepciones tuas. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Gorman. We have time for uh, just a couple of questions, and I know that the, uh, the first is from Dr. Rick van Nuyenhove, who is joining us from uh, Durham and uh, will be uh -oh. coming to us through Zoom. So he's figured largely in both of the talks we've seen so far. Rick, please go ahead. All right. Uh, thank you, uh, Michael, uh, for this talk and for your engagement with my work. I'm, I'm sort of humbled, really. Um, I have one or two short observations, um, and then I have a question. Um, in terms of uh, contemplation and uh, it being a fourth act, I, I think the only text is really question 180, article 4, and only if you follow the proper critical edition, the uh, Praeter Contemplationem. So I actually kind of agree with you um, that we shouldn't read too much into it. And I myself am in doubt whether Thomas was fully committed to the view that it was a fourth act, because it's the only text and it, it's, it's not entirely clear. So I agree with you. Um, I'm still wondering, having listened to your text, why do you think he went for the Neoplatonic sources rather than Aristotle, if it wasn't for the apodeictic element. Um, so that, that, that's one question. And uh, the more important question, um, not immediately related to anything you explicitly raised, but there is the issue of infused contemplation. And I'm not comfortable with that term at all. Thomas actually doesn't use it at all himself apart from in the, well, not even in the, in the commentary on John. Um, and if, if contemplation ultimately is thinking, as you say, and I agree with that, then whether you're thinking whether Christ had two wills or one will, or whether you're trying to prove the immortality of the soul, which is a philosophical thing, in both cases, we're doing the same thing. We're thinking. So although the theology obviously relies on faith, there is no such thing as infused contemplation as an operation, I think. Now, that, that's probably a, a fairly provocative statement to make, I don't know, but I would like your views on it. Yeah. And thank you again for your talk. Thank you. Well, let me start with the easier one about why Aquinas talks about the Neoplatonic sources. It's easier because um, I don't know. I mean, it's easy to answer. I mean, you, you mentioned certain, you mentioned other things 
that it supports, in a, that it, other things that Aquinas is trying to do that going Neoplatonic helps, connecting with the angels and things like that. Um, but beyond that, I don't, I, like, I don't have anything more than, than what you've got. I think it's very interesting and very surprising fact, especially because, as you mentioned at one point, when Aquinas gives reasons why the contemplative life is better, he goes to Aristotle. So then, so you would think he's, like, he's, it's not like he forgets that Aristotle talks about contemplation. So he, that sort of strengthens the claim that he seems to be choosing the Neoplatonic sources. But I don't have a good answer to that. Now, about infused contemplation, um, I really don't know what to say about this either, but I have a comment or two. Um, so my first thought is that when you say infused X, whatever X is, contemplation or whatever, virtue, whatever, you are at least in the first instance talking about that thing X in terms of its causal origin. So you're just saying, yeah, it's contemplation, but where did it come from? Is it acquired? No, it's infused. So that in and of itself tends to support what I think you're saying, that it's just the same kind of thing. It just comes from somewhere else. Um, but my other thought is this. I think it's possible that when people bring to Aquinas the question, does Aquinas have uh, an account of infused contemplation, they aren't using the word contemplation the way Aquinas uses it. They are coming from some sort of um, um, traditional, um, you know, a tradition of, of, of um, theorizing about the nature of prayer, basically. So they've been reading John of the Cross or whatever, and then they say, huh, um, I wonder if this is in Aquinas too. And so it's possible that Aquinas isn't asking that question or it's also possible that he's asking that question but using very different terminology. So it might just be um, like just trying to approach it by asking whether, um, whether approach it through the terminology might be kind of problematic. It might, whether or not Aquinas has a notion of infused contemplation might have only a little bit to do with whether Aquinas uses that phrase or, you, or even discusses it within you know, a mile of the word contemplation. That's just the beginning of a, a gesture of, at this. But I don't have more than that. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ruman. Our next question is from one of our uh, live panelists, you might say, uh, Dr. Angela Knobel from the Catholic University. Uh, thank you for a very interesting talk. I'm just going to, um, so I don't know a lot about this. I'm probably just going to reveal my ignorance. Um, but I just want to describe a thought process that I was having during your talk and tell you my own answer that I came up with and see what you think about it. So, you know, you use the example of um, the Pythagorean, being able to contemplate the Pythagorean theorem, being able to contemplate birds. Um, and I was thinking about examples that I tend to think of as examples of contemplation. And, so I agree that you can contemplate birds, however boring that may be. Um, that's a little joke. Yeah, we have a running joke about bird watching. <laughs> um, um, but I mean, I tend to think that you can contemplate not just the Pythagorean theorem, but also a proof of the Pythagorean yeah. theorem, right? So I mean, you can you come up with a new proof, and you're like, wow, I just this is amazing, and you just kind of sit and you like to look through it again just because you think it's so beautiful and it's more elegant than any other proof you ever saw. And when I was listening to you, I was wondering if I get to contemplate that, right? Because of the distinction that you very, very rightly made between intellectus and ratio. And then I thought, well, that's silly. Um, of course I can contemplate the, the really elegant proof because the act of intellectus um, is aimed at, the act of understanding is aimed at essences. And anything that has a nature um, is something that can, you know, that's what understanding is. And, and that proof, that really elegant proof, it's, it's something in its own right, right? That's, um, and so <laughs> that led me to think that um, perhaps what's happening in contemplation is that I'm 
re-engaging in my initial grasp of the essence of a thing. Like when I look at the bird and I contemplate the bird, I'm re <laughs> or I'm go again grasping um, the whatness of the bird. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so, but then if that's the case, then that led me to think that perhaps contemplation um, is the act of, you know, it's the, it's the act of understanding engaged in again for its own sake. And then that would point to an answer to Rick's question because there can be infused understanding. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and then I'm re-engaging in that initial act of infused understanding, but it wouldn't be infused contemplation. Anyway, that's just what was yeah. going on in my head. Yeah, yeah. So there's um, a proof of the, indeed the Pythagorean theorem that involves some diagram. And there's the sort of, I was trying to track this down. Sometimes people say this is in like, comes from the Babylonians. I saw somewhat more, a little bit more authoritatively attributed to some medieval Jewish mathematician. But anyway, there's a version of this where you get a diagram and then it just says, behold. And you're supposed to like look at the diagram and go, oh, right? You just see the proof from the diagram. So this is like a really uh, pictorial example of just what you're talking about. So here's my hypothesis about this. I've heard it said that um, for every argument, there's like a conditional proposition that corresponds to the argument. So if you've got all men are mortal, Socrates is man, therefore Socrates is mortal, that's an argument. So you can make a conditional proposition of the form, if all men are mortal and Socrates is man, then Socrates is mortal. So if you can, if a judgment is simple enough to be the object of contemplation, then anytime there's an argument, you can, in a sense, turn that argument back into one big giant judgment. And I take it when you're contemplating a, pr a proof, you're a much better mathematician than I am, you're not, ex I mean, it's not that you don't go through it again, but there's a way in which you kind of see the whole thing all at once. Yeah, you see. So that sort of suggests that you're sort of transforming it into a kind of great big judgment. Now, you were talking a lot about intellectus as if the object, as if it's actually a simple understanding. I'm talking about judgment. So that's something else we'd have to work through. But um, yeah, anyway, that's a partial answer. Thanks. Well, Dr. Michael Root almost had a question, but he said you just said what he was going to say. So we're going to go to one of our Zoom callers, uh, Matthew Pietropoli. I just wanted to bring uh, Dr. Root's name in so that everyone from home would realize what an all-star cast we, we have here in studio. Um, but Matthew Pietropoli uh, has a question. Please, Matthew, go ahead. Okay. Oh, hi, uh, Dr. Gorman. It's great to uh, hear you teach again. Um, I missed that from our CUA days. So that was the first thing I wanted to say. And then the second was to kind of follow up on uh, the question Dr. Canova was asking. And uh, I agree with you. I think watching birds is incredible. It's a wonderful activity. I just wanted to hear your thoughts on kind of the receptive nature of that. In other words, you're talking about uh, a beholding gaze rooted in joy, rooted in love for something. And it seems like at a certain point in that gaze, you cease trying to accomplish anything. You're not trying to necessarily figure anything out. You're not trying to achieve something. So I was just wondering what your thoughts are about kind of the receptive or passive element that's involved there where you sort of let the thing become present to you in its fullness and how you, in a way, condition your mind for that uh, receptivity to occur. Yeah, thank you. So I think there are a lot of resources in probably, well, I'll say just at least this much in the um, Aristotelian tradition, but also the phenomenological tradition. And we could like squeeze a few things out of some analytic philosophers too about this topic here where some acts of the mind involve going out and trying to change the world to make it fit your mind. But other times what you do is you basically allow the mind, sorry, you allow the world to act on you and change your mind. And so the mind is conformed to the world. And so you receive a way of existing 
from the world. And so, and that is in a sense passive. You have to do a lot of, engage in a lot of activity to get yourself ready for it, sort of proximately. So I'm getting now at the second part of your question. You have to do a lot of things proximately to get yourself in a position to receive it. It's kind of like, um, not that I'm very good at this, but I'm told, <laughs> if you have to like run around and get where the ball is gonna land and then, but when you catch it, there's something a little passive. You have to give a little bit to receive the ball. Usually when I try this, the ball lands over there. But like, so there's activity getting ready, but then there's the reception. Um, but there's a, a, a bigger question, which is what you could sort of more remotely do to prepare you. Uh, and that starts to engage with um, fond Father Andrew Hofer's paper a little bit. Like if you're, you wanna be in a sort of moral and spiritual state where you're able to, uh, where you're interested in allowing reality to like act on you and you're receptive rather than always trying to go out and make things happen your, the way you want them to happen. And I think that there's a kind of asceticism that goes into being a truthful person. We um, often want certain answers to be right. We want to believe that the polls say this or that certain claims about this or whatever are true. And so we, we have like, we say that we're here to find out the truth, but we're actually here to have our desires confirmed. And that's like a sort of bad way to approach things. Like if you're really interested in the truth, you just wanna know what it is. And that involves, there's a kind of asceticism and um, a sort of stripping away of your own desires that has to go into that. So I don't know if I'm addressing your question at all. So now Dr. Reed does in fact have a, a question for you. This is less a question than a comment. It seems to me, now speaking as a theologian, and certainly I, I don't wanna speak as a philosopher, uh, that at the highest point of contemplation, which would be the beatific vision, you have a kind of perfect unity of the highest possible, highest possible passivity and the highest possible activity. Since the beatific vision, beatitude is an act, and, and here you're now the perfect completion of the intellect and the beatific vision, but since our beatific vision is a participation in the divine self-knowledge, we can only know the divine essence through the activity of the divine essence knowing itself. It is, in a sense, utterly passive, because it's strictly receptive. We cannot, by any um, the nature of any in, uh, human act of contemplation, know the divine essence. We have to participate. The, the intellectual species has to be the divine essence itself. Right. So it seems to me, now, at the level now of grace, and as you said, grace perfects nature. There's got to be some continuity here. At least at the level of grace, the, the highest act of contemplation is, in a certain sense, the highest act, oxio, and the highest passio at the yeah. same time. Yeah, I mean, the mind is a really weird thing because <laughs> what it's there to do is to receive. I mean, the image of a mirror, the sort of classic image about the mind, right? Um, a mirror that is perfectly clean and polished, you, in a sense, you can't see the mirror. You can see the back of the mirror, but the, the mirror surface, you just see other things in it. Um, and of course, if we ask ourselves, do I really wanna be like a mirror, then we're not so sure because that means that we want our really interesting things to be um, uh, rubbed off and swept away by Windex so that we can reflect something greater than ourselves. And then we're like, well, maybe that's not such a good idea because I would really like to put my own two cents in. So there's this, it sort of goes to this ascetical thing again, yeah. So it's, a, it's this weird activity where the activity is to receive, yeah. Dr. Gorman, we have a, a question which I'm going to read from one of our Zoom participants. Uh, sh her name may be familiar to you, Sister Eva Marie Gorman, uh, a Dominican sister who I think is related to you. Um, and she writes this, I'm wondering how far you think the bird watching analogy goes. If looking at birds improves your ability to look for birds, then does contemplating also improve your more rationative thinking? Not that you would contemplate in order to improve your rationative thinking. I'm just wondering if contemplation has spillover effects beyond its, beyond its own delightfulness. Yeah, that's a good question. I think the answer has to be yes. So, I mean, it may sort of pair adjutants not be true for this or that person, but if you have a better contemplative understanding of 
God or human nature or whatever, then when it comes time to um, go back towards ordinary sort of activity, you're better informed. Um, and you're in a better position to know what needs to be done and how it ought to be done. So that's a, a funny way in which, um, well, I'm, I don't know, actually, I don't know how um, people who are in the theology biz like sell theology to um, prospective students. I know in philosophy, there's this always this sort of um, funny sort of switching back and forth between this is a completely, this is an, uh, a thing that you do totally for its own sake and it's so beautiful, and then you sort of like go like turn the other way and you say, and by the way, philosophy majors get really good scores on the LSAT. But like, it, you know, forgetting this, there's a different way in which um, contemplating is, is practical, not um, that it makes you better at the LSAT, however true that may be, but just if you have a better understanding of God and of the nature of the world and stuff, you're just in a better position to get along in almost everything that you do. Um, so I, I agree with that. I think that's right. Our next question is from uh, Father John Corbett. Dr. Corbett, thank you very much for your presentation. It was very help, very, very interesting. Uh, my question has to do with terminology. I agree that when we talk about infused contemplation, we don't find any uh, verbal analogs in St. Thomas. It's really that, uh, that phrase is more redolent of Carmelite spirituality. Yeah. Uh, or later traditions of mysticism. Um, but what about, uh, is there, would you think that there is an, a functional equivalent for St. Thomas in his discussion of the invisible missions of the divine persons? Invisible mission of the word, invisible mission of the spirit. Wait, did those where, 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 the, where the word begins to exist in the, in the human mind right. in a new way sent from them and so forth. I don't want to say anything confidently about that at all, but that sounds like a, a very good way to start thinking about this. Um, yeah, because if you, if you, if you, I mean, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I just think that's a very promising place to start. I mean, often the, you know, if you're sort of stuck in some problem, a good thing to do is to, is to find the word that everybody argues about and just agree not to use it. So like, let's explore this topic and never say contemplation and see what happens. And that's a very... Um, and the reason I think it I might be a fruitful yeah. suggestion is the contemplation, even, the, 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 even granting its uh, passive dimensions in the human person is still unmistakably an act of the human mind and therefore yeah. somewhat disproportionate to what we mean by the event of, of uh, infused contemplation, where there's a more immediate action of God at work, who illumines our mind. Yes. But the, the accent then is further on the divine activity and less on, on right. human intelligence. Yeah, so there ought to be a way to take those discussions of, of the missions, as you say, and maybe put those together with... Um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and whatnot, and then maybe also um, connect that with the stuff Aquinas says about prayer. And like by drawing those things together, the, the things themselves may emerge, and then it will turn out to be not all that important whether Aquinas uses the word contemplation. But I think that, 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 that business about the missions is really helpful for getting at that sort of more Carmelite edge. I hadn't thought of that. Thank you. Dr. Gorman, if I can um, also throw in uh, just a thought here and ask for your comment, it's along the same lines. Um, when Aquinas talks about the different ways, he's talking about, say, prophetic knowledge, the different ways God can, can illuminate the mind. Um, he says that sometimes it involves uh, two things and sometimes only one or the other, but there's two dimensions to it that it can involve. The first is that he uh, gives new infused species. So that is the mind has something new in in the mind, you might say, to think about or to work on. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other is a strengthening of the intellectual light by which you understand what you know. So that is to say, um, he might give you a new idea or a new image in your mind and a light to understand it. He might give you a new uh, image in your mind without the light to understand it. He might just give you a new light to understand things that you already knew. Um, Okay, so I, I think that seems relevant to the issue of infused contemplation. 
And what difference does it make that these things would be kind of precursors to an act of contemplation? I mean, is that, in other words, is that like a friendly amendment to your talk yeah, to throw I, that I in there? Or is it a different, is it something well, else that's going on? It's certainly not completely else. So, so somebody who has had a, a sort of um, prophetic influence in this way is either now in position to contemplate on a broader range of topics or to contemplate better, to grasp truths more firmly um, or to penetrate them more deeply or both. So um, yeah, no, I think that's right. It would be, I think it sounds like it would be, you wouldn't want to say that that's a necessary condition of contemplation, but that facilitates it in a supernatural way. That's another thing we should bring in then, yeah. We're going to go back to Dr. Rick Van Nuyenhove, who has a further contribution on this point brought up by Father Corbett. Rick, go ahead. Yeah, it, it's a really important question about, about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and, and the invisible missions. Um, but it seems to me uh, that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are important, essential, for contemplation in a broad sense, but not for contemplation in a strict sense, by which I mean philosophical and theological contemplation. And that's a distinction that Thomas makes in the commentary on the sentences. Uh, for instance, prayer uh, is part of the of contemplation in the broad sense. It has to do with practical intellect. So for that reason, it can't be part of contemplation in the strict sense, in this sort of strictly speculative sense. And I think Thomas actually changed his mind on these matters. In the commentary on the sentences, he still toys with the notion that the gifts of the Holy Spirit might assist us in understanding the articles of faith, and that would then be the basis of theology. But once he comes across the idea of subalternation, he drops that altogether. Uh, and that is why his theolo theology and his understanding of contemplation is radically different from, let's say, Bonaventure. I, I don't know whether that makes sense. So is the, the idea is that the gifts don't... Um don't facilitate theoretical activity. Like they don't make you better at theology. They're not necessary for Thomas. I, I think Thomas is saying that in order to be a theologian, you don't necessarily need to have the gifts. Ideally, you should. Ah, okay. But yeah, yeah. I don't think it's necessary. You need to have faith. Right. But, but you don't but, need charity, actually, uh, to be a theologian. <laughs> now, ideally, you should. Um, but you don't, yeah. it's, it's not necessarily. We all know that. So, uh, just kidding. Yeah. Um, okay. But you're not, you're not saying that the gifts are of their nature incapable of facilitating theology, just that theology doesn't need them to be theology. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds right. Were you saying? Yeah. Okay. I think we, we need to draw our, our session to a close. Uh, I regret that very much because there's still lots of questions that have come in from Zoom that we haven't gotten to, so my apologies to everyone who submitted a question and we haven't been able to address. But uh, please do help me give our thanks to Dr. Gorman for a superb uh, contribution. Thank you.